my go-to explanation is to make the, the analogy between a diet and an amputation. So degrowth in the sense that it's progressive, it's selective, it's planned, it's more akin to a diet applied to an economy. But if you're a doctor and I tell you kilos are going down, you can still make the difference between a healthy diet and a traumatic amputation. So that's what I'm asking from economists, is a bit of like broaden your imagination. You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast. The one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome back to PGAP, where your co-hosts Michael Bayless and Mark Allen. Mark, how's your 2024 panning out? It's panning out okay, thanks Michael. How is yours going? Well, it's even better when I saw the results of our interview with Larry Blight, who opened... 2024 on PGAP. The results have been very impressive actually. Listens have been very high on January. Uh, There's been fantastic community feedback from listeners in the broader community alike on that episode and I noticed that it's been shared by locals in Albany and also on email lists and a lot of other kind of unexpected places as well. That's really, really good to hear. We need to hear more voices like Lara's. So any opportunity to be able to spread the perspectives of First Nations people such as Larry, uh, we, we must use those opportunities whenever we can. And I really appreciate that he was so open to talking about issues and topics that uh, aren't normally brought up as well. I think it was a very unique interview. It was, yeah. And, and I appreciate that people generally em- embrace that direction. Yes. So, yeah, I'm really excited about our next guest, who is Timothée Parik, economist based in France and Sweden and has since become a lot more involved and known within the degrowth movement and alternative economists. Now I came across Timothée on Twitter because I was trying to find out more information on the 2023 Beyond Growth Conference. Uh, which was held in the EU Parliament. I also came across an article from The Economist who wrote a critique of the conference, which was titled rather disparagingly, Meet the Lefty Europeans Who Want to Deliberately Shrink the Economy. So typical. Yes, indeed. And again, it just goes to show the lack of knowledge that people have about what degrowth actually is, because, of course, it's not about shrinking the economy. It's about creating a different kind of economic system whereby shrinking is actually a good thing. (laughs) So, yeah, Dimitri will talk about that in great detail. Well, his response article was titled A Response to the Economist, Shut Up and Let Me Grow. And from reading that and subsequently when I've seen him speak at TEDx talks on YouTube and other places such as that, what is becomes immediately apparent is his very colourful uh, use of metaphor and simile and um, impressionism and things like that when he's speaking on, you know, what would typically people may perceived as quite uh, dry economic issues and he's a very engaging speaker 
I very much doubt he'll uh, disappoint on PGAP. I've just listened back and, again, his use of metaphors are just really, really great. Him spending the time to speak with us, it's an absolute honour. I'm looking forward to it. And without further ado, we welcome you to our interview on PGAP with Timothée Parikh. Timothée Parikh, welcome to Postgrowth Australia podcast. How are you? Hello, I'm very well. I'm a recent follower of your work via Twitter a few months ago, especially around the uh, conference in Europe around degrowth and it looked like some amazing stuff was going on there. So I'm perhaps um, new to you like some Australian listeners may be. So let us start off by telling us a little about yourself, your passions and what drives you. Well, I live in uh, Anglet, in the Basque Country, in the southwest of France. That's a, a small surfing town. That's where actually I, I wrote Ralentir ou Périr l'économie de la décroissance, so Slow Down or Perish the Economics of Degrowth, which was a, a book based on my PhD thesis, The Political Economy of Degrowth. So I guess one part of my identity is that I'm an ecological economist. I've been trained in economics and for many years I've been trying to research the concept of degrowth and post-growth and more broadly even of alternatives to capitalism. And that's uh, what I'm trying to do when I'm not surfing, which is something I try to do at least uh, once a day. Degrowth is all about, well, not all about, but a lot of it is about getting the right balance between work and leisure. So it sounds like um, you're putting that into practice. So as a professional ecological economist, have you always seen economics through a degrowth framework or have you made the move over time from conventional economics to degrowth land? And partly I'm asking on reflection of my own economics degree, in which I tried but couldn't understand the logic behind classical economics, but struggled anyway through the degree in order to fit in. No, I made a late move. Uh, my education at university in economics really felt like the movie The Matrix. And, you know, and I, I was like red pilled, uh, maybe like during my third or even fourth year out. So it was um, last minute, you know, I, I, right now you could be talking to me and I could be working for a bank explaining you a trickle down theory and why capitalism is uh, the most fitting system to human nature. But I happened to do an Erasmus exchange to a, a, a university in Sweden, the University of Uppsala during my third year. And uh, that university, I didn't know, but was specialized in sustainability science and especially ecological economics. And so for me, as a mainstream economics student that was aiming for business school and for, you know, high paid jobs, whoever is paying, I didn't care much. I just wanted, like all of my other friends back then, just aiming for high salaries. And I did a couple of courses in interdisciplinary sustainability science and I discovered climate change and other sustainability issues. I discovered also heterodox economics, so the fact that neoclassical theory is not the entirety of economics as a science. And that was my red pill moment. I was like, wow, there's much more to economics than the kind of theories I've been learning for the last three years. And I decided I did not want to go back into the matrix. I was like, I want to stay in that full world 
And I want to train myself to be able to better understand these sustainability issues. So when I came back, I, I completely shifted, went into environmental economics first, which I guess is, you know, the reflex when you've been trained in mathematical neoclassical theory. You're like, you know, let's see what they have to offer. I did a master of that and I was very disappointed because it was still very limited uh, because it's, it was just built on neoclassical assumptions. So it was just a continuation of neoclassical theory rather than a starting point from biophysical reality. You know, instead of reconstructing economics from physical and biological reality, environmental economists have just been trying to add nature as like another kind of resource to neoclassical theory. So I was like, okay, enough guys. I took my bags, left for Sweden, restarted another master entirely that I focused on ecological economics. And then I discovered degrowth even after that. So even back then, like degrowth was not an important concept in these uh, kinds of education. It was still very niche. I mean, that was around like 2012, 2013. Back in that days, there were only like a hundred, a couple, not even like a bit more than a hundred peer-reviewed articles on the topic. There was a few books. There's nothing big. You could not find any podcast or videos on YouTube on degrowth. Like the media was not covering it unless you spoke Italian, Spanish or French and you could find a few things. But in English, there was just very little. So randomly, I did this summer school at the University of Barcelona in 2014. And then I met, uh, you know, François Schneider and Filka um, Sekulova and uh, Yorgos Kallis and Juan Martinez Allier and all these pioneers of, of growth. Uh, critical theories and 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 degrowth uh, conceptualizations and then i was just smacked i was like wow this is the most powerful concept i have ever seen you know a bit like you're playing pokemon and then you see this rare level 100 you know and you're like wow as a scientist i was like this is cool stuff this is the kind of spell i want to learn okay that's now a harry potter reference okay you're not ready for this i'm sorry this is morning so now my brain's all over the place i actually really appreciated your very unique metaphors <laughs> on, <laughs> on some of the interviews and videos more of this please but the bottom line was i discovered degrowth during that summer school and that's when i felt like i want to write my phd on that but the problem was to and as we'll discover the concept of degrowth was so interdisciplinary and so analytically complex because it was a blend of Marxian economics and ecological economics and political ecology, many different other things coming from many disciplines. I felt I was not like equipped uh, to properly give it justice. So my PhD was actually me just like reading left, right and center and going to different university departments, going to different universities in different countries, in Spain and Sweden and France, and just trying to get myself like to understand, to get myself this kind of Rubik's Cubic perspective on a concept so that I could develop what I tried to develop in the political economy of degrowth, which is basically an economic theory of degrowth. So trying to start from the concept and kind of try to understand the economic implications of that of that concept and uh, that was that was very fun actually these few years were just amazingly fun that's um, that's the moment where i just recommend all of those guys that are hesitating to do a phd like if you find a concept where you're like wow i really want to understand how this works and you feel like this kind of burning passion that means you're ready to just write a phd then the the whole thing is just um, a pleasure i think then you're just paid to read books and write one very long book about that topic you love. Now, I think you're a classic example where 
that um, Timothée from 10 years ago would never have envisioned you being here where you are now. Um, I remember the two red pill moments for me in economics was um, firstly when they called the environment, the natural world, an externality, which I thought was a bit of a simplification. And then in third year, where the whole semester was basically uh, modelling using partial derivatives, and I was like, if this is really what dictates the way we live, you know, I want out. But, you know, on reflection, I think the experience in classical economics as bullshit as a whole concept is uh, is a boon because I think when you're advocating for degrowth economics, it's good to know how the competition think. And you recently wrote an excellent article in response to The Economist. The article from the economics was quite narky towards degrowth, a lot of misconceptions. In a recent interview I had with Australian Mark Diesendorf on his new book, we discussed the fundamental differences between planned degrowth and recession. And how would you explain the distinction? My go-to explanation is to make the, the analogy between a diet and an amputation. So degrowth in the sense that it's progressive, it's selective, it's planned, it's more akin to a diet applied to an economy. You want to lose weight, in the analogy, weight is total ecological footprint, but you want to do so in a way that is just, that is convivial, that is not threatening uh, the capacity of your economy to deliver uh, well-being. So you want to do this in a nice diet, but you want to lose kilos. The amputation is just you want to lose kilo too, but you're just going to chop one of your leg off and then call yourself happy because you're 15 kilos lighter. Uh, no one wants to do that economic crisis, they're, they're all crisis, <laughs> you know, that's in the name. They're unplanned, they're chaotic, they're not selective, they hit like the poorest for first, so they're just the opposite of social justice. So economists, they have a tendency to understand everything through, through the lens of monetary indicators. So if you tell them like reduction of production and consumption, for them what they hear is recession, because they, they think GDP is going down. But if you're a doctor and I tell you, kilos are going down, you can still make the difference between a healthy diet and a traumatic amputation. So that's what I'm asking from economists, is a bit of like broaden your imagination and imagine that actually a reduction in production and consumption can happen in a variety of scenarios, some being like much more traumatic in terms of well-being, social justice, democracy, and, and even sustainability than others. And degrowth, at least the way the concept has been developing since... 2002 in France and since the end of the 2000s in English is actually trying to find these sweet spot scenarios where we can align these different objectives, meaning like having this economic contraction that is absolutely necessary to reduce the ecological footprint, but having it so in a way that is planned so that it actually leaves the most vulnerable today better off so that this selective shrinking can be democratically planned so we can decide together actually where to start, which kind of goods and services we should shrink and which others should be maintained or even others should be expanded while doing this while maintaining or even improving quality of life. So, Tim, you've touched on this, but why degrowth and why can't we just green growth and or decouple our way out of the problem? Um, I must say you have written and spoken extensively on this and we'll provide some of those in the show notes. 
Yeah, that's my... Uh, I've been repeating that message at least since 2019, where I, with a couple of colleagues, published, like, Decoupling Debunked in the summer of 2019. So where we tried to show, basically, that most people who assumed you can green growth had a very narrow definition of what green growth is. Most of them actually were only meaning decoupling economic growth from greenhouse gases with a very narrow, often just nation-based measure of these greenhouse gases. My analogy here is to be like, sustainability is not just a matter of decarbonizing your economy. It's more like a Rubik's Cube. Every color in the Rubik's Cube is a different planetary boundary. You have ocean acidification, you have chemical loading, you have land system use, you have biospheric integrity, and one of them is deemed, indeed is climate change. You want to solve the Rubik's Cubes with all the faces together. You don't want to just rush in reducing greenhouse gases and just ruining biodiversity and oceans and just loading soils and water with chemicals. No, you, you need to do everything at once. As ecological economists, we are very well equipped to understand the interactions between these different Earth systems. And I think one of the main insights that has been produced since the emergence of ecological economics in the 1980s, it's very difficult, if not theoretically impossible, to make an economy grow for a very long period of time without exerting pressures on the environment, let it be just more extraction of metals, biomass, uh, water, fossil fuels, minerals, or uh, more environmental impact on soil, local air, global atmospheric balance, uh, water, waste, whatever you can think of. And so people that are just picking, you know, oh, look, the UK has been reducing greenhouse gases by very, very, very small amount, and therefore growth is being green <laughs> and we're out of the problem. They're like, it's imagine like your doctor is telling you, you have to lose 20 kilos, otherwise I'm worried for your health. And then you come back a year after and you're like, look, Look, my forearm is 12 gram lighter than it was last year. And your doctor is going to be like, but I don't give a damn about the weight of your forearm. Like, I give a damn about the weight of the entire, like, you as a person. You know, if you lose 12 gram over a year and the target was 20 kilos, obviously that has no impact on your health. You're still going to have issues. So growth that is genuinely green would be one that take into account this kind of multi-impact perspective. And that also takes seriously scientists targets so that reduction we want to see needs to be fast enough and they need to be happening where the emissions are also so and that green growth i mean it's not like i've not been looking you know i've i spent like half of my time just like screening studies to kind of better understand what's been effective in actually reducing footprint but i've never seen in any country in the world a country that can both manages like exponential rates of economic growth and these kind of fast multi-impact reductions in footprint. So from that perspective, like what the science is telling us is that the discourse of green growth that we don't hear from scientists, we hear them from politicians, uh, from, you know, uh, badly trained in sustainability science economists and from international organizations like the World Bank or the European Commission that use this as a kind of like um, slogan or discursive figure. Uh, it, it's a fable. It has no scientific foundations. The more we advance, the more data we get about the outcomes of previous uh, green growth policies, and the more we realize that actually uh, it's not going to deliver. Something else needs to be done. 
And that's where we very quickly arrive in the degrowth debate, because if you cannot lower your total ecological footprint while growing, or even while maintaining your economy in a steady state, well, you have to reduce production and consumption. There is no like other magic button, you know, there is no like third option where you can do something magical. And so for me, like before we even discuss like all of the manifold challenges of how to shrink an economy in the way that is socially sustainable, having to do with employment, with inequality, with the financing of the welfare state, with geopolitical stability, all of that, they're genuine challenges. We have to face the fact that today, if you want sustainability, you will have to just produce and consume less. If you think these two can be reconciled, show us the numbers. I want to see the study. The full burden of proof is on the eco-modernist, pro-growth, environmentalist that want to show that basically it's going to be easier to reduce ecological footprint by producing more than it is by producing less. Very well said. And there's this weird presupposition in the modern environmental movement, in my opinion, that um, climate change is the only variable. And it's almost like as if only we could extract all the remaining resources and replace all other species on the planet with um, ourselves and our bullshit developments like that would somehow be okay so long as there were zero emissions with it and it's like that's incredibly reductionist it's it's strange you see there's this cartoon i like where you see someone like with a chainsaw just cutting a very ancient tree and there is environmentalist doing oh what are you doing to the tree and and the guy's like don't worry you know that chainsaw runs on electricity it's like carbon neutral the point is that we have to look at what our entire economic system is doing to nature as a whole. And if you substitute one fossil-based source of energy to a lower carbon forms of energy, but still continue, for example, to what we call land, land system change, so deforestation, for example, which has a huge impact on ecosystem stability and especially on, on biodiversity, if we continue doing this, even though there is no greenhouse gas emissions, it creates environmental degradation that at some point will kick back into an economic problem. The The most symbolic example I spend a lot of time looking is the impact of insect uh, extinction on agricultural uh, yields. So, I mean, we don't often realize, uh, but ecosystems, they are one of the most important factor of production in our ability to feed ourselves. And so if that disappears and all of a sudden you have no insect that can pollinate because for decades you've been introducing chemicals that somehow, you know, is harmful to their health, then you find yourself with not only an ecological crisis, you find yourself with like an economic crisis. You won't be able to produce food that will turn into, you know, the threat of actually societal collapse. So that we have to look into today, I've, I've this kind of a vision of resilience where what we want to secure is our dynamic ability to satisfy needs, concrete needs, not just employment, maintain inflation, or just protect purchasing power. All of that, they're just administrative needs. They're just means, they're not ends. The real needs are just how do you feed yourself, house yourself, protect yourself, move yourself. You know, this is what I mean by concrete needs. And whatever concrete needs you can think of, Every single time there's energy and materials involved. You know, if you want to move yourself, obviously you need to mobilize some energy, very often also a means of transportation that is requiring some materials and running on some kind of energy, even if that's your own, if you're riding a bike. 
any human infrastructure we might be using in the internet uh, to record a, a podcast like we do now is just built on materials. Everything we eat, everything we drink, the water has been cleaned by some kind of ecological systems out there. Uh, and so if we start messing with this, we're messing with the very fabric of society. And the fact that these resources are nowhere to be seen in mainstream economic theory should not be, you know, it's a very bad excuse for just ignoring them. It's an analytical problem, but in reality, I think it's very easy to understand how fundamental these resources are. Just so you know that Postgrowth Australia podcast is decoupled from reality, so we're not making any emissions here, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, like any new movement, um, there are a bunch of terms that come up, and as organisms that communicate via language, we like to argue over diminishing t differences of different terms. So I know in some of the social media groups, people are arguing by degrowth and post-growth and which one's better, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think you made a great distinction between degrowth as a transition and post-growth as a destination, which I think can be quite helpful. Um, did you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, so degrowth for me, in the analogy, that's the macroeconomic diet. So you take a country in ecological overshoot, so whose ecological footprint uh, is higher than its carrying capacity, the carrying capacity of its ecosystems. And so that country, depending on the size and kind of the overshoot, if it's an overshoot that's very, you know, heavy on the oceans or forest or greenhouse gases or what, you know, that's going to give you basically your uh, agenda for the degrowth transition that might last as long as you need to get back within uh, your planetary boundaries. So if you do it very fast, it's going to be very short. If you do it very slow, it's going to be very long. But that's a transition nonetheless. I mean, think about the diet. When you do a diet, it doesn't last for, for the rest of your life. It lasts until you've managed to lose those 20 kilos that were threatening your health. But I think it's worth you making an analytical difference between, you know, when that thing starts and when that things stop, which is also a nice uh, reverse to the concept of, of growth. I think it's mistaken to assume that somehow an economy is just growing all the time and forever. Even historically, that's untrue. Growth are just temporary uh, phenomena. Uh, an economy, just something happens and then in that economy, people, they find a new source of energy or they socially decide to agitate themselves in producing and consuming more. And then we observe some kind of macroeconomic growth. Degrowth is the same. At some point, hopefully very soon, the you know societies of high-income countries will realize that actually sustainability is priority number one for well-being and social justice. And so therefore, they will just agitate themselves. They will organize collectively this kind of downscaling of production and consumption, which if you observe from a bird's eye, you would see this, uh, the consequence will be a macroeconomic shrinking of like the economy as a whole. Even though the content of the economy might be changing, certain goods and services might still be produced and others might even be produced in higher quantities. I'm thinking, for example, of like bikes or bike lanes or stuff like this. But let's say the kind of activities you reduce will counterbalance the one you increase because as an ecological economist, we know that if you want to reduce the footprint, you need to have this counterbalancing mechanism where you close down more project than you open. And so when that ends, let's say you do this for a number of years and then you're happy, your ecological footprint fall back within biocapacity. So 
In theory, your your economy is sustainable. Then I think you switch to uh, what Ehrman Daly was calling a steady state economy. This, I, I think it's nice to call it post growth because it's a concept that is rising in popularity. Uh, it's a concept that I like because it refers to, let's say, a broader family of ways of thinking uh, of an economy beyond economic growth. So post growth, I see it rather as a mode of organization. So the steady state economy is a more descriptive term to be, well, if you measure the size of an economy in biophysical term, that economy needs to remain in a steady state. There can be small variations, but no exponential changes because otherwise you're going to cross planetary boundaries again. But post-growth rather refers to like, how do you collectively organize for the satisfaction of needs for, you know, innovation, investment, uh, for organizing a welfare state and public services, all that kind of stuff uh, without falling back within uh, the pitfalls of growth-based uh, economics. So post-growth has this kind of mentality, or some people are talking about beyond growth, some people are talking about uh, post-capitalism, uh, post-productivism, or you know, post-extractivism. So post-growth is a nice little meta-term, umbrella term, to include all of these um, objections to growth and practical solutions to organize an economy without growth. Peter Victor, the Canadian economist, he was talking like, you know, managing without growth or uh, Tim Jackson, the, the the British economist talking about like prosperity without growth. There is Kate Rayworth also with a donut economy uh, that is just, you know, thriving within planetary boundaries. So I think post-growth is a nice uniting term to bring all of these varying schools of thought uh, within uh, one uh, broad agenda. Ex excellently put. And I think no matter what you call it, like e everything is touching um, on a broader reality that we need fundamental changes to the growth-based economic mindset that we are in. Now, in May this year, there was a Beyond Growth conference organised in the European Parliament, which I saw on Twitter all the way in Australia, and I was infinitely jealous that we weren't having one of our own. What were your reflections on the conference? Do you believe there is a groundswell within the collective EU psych toward a degrowth transition, or at least some sectors of the EU psyche? Uh, it's, it's difficult to answer. So... I mean, I've attended the, the two conferences we had the European Parliament. So there was the uh, post-growth conference in September 2018 and the, the Beyond Growth one in, in May 2023. And I mean, first, the scale of each of this conference uh, has changed. So we were a few hundreds of uh, scientist nerds, mostly in 2018, for like uh, two today's event that did not interest many people at the parliament it was mainly like i think the european parliament being like okay guys you can use a room for two days to have your nerdy discussions but we don't really care this year was different there was more than five thousand people gathering in the european parliament wow. and this time it just brought like civil society uh, political parties uh, members of the commission four or five people from the commission uh, itself that came to speak at the conference the media also uh, so that thing was featured on on tv and the radio and i mean as you see the economist publishing a little report even though it, it called it pretty wacky growth as the root of all problem jamboree among a cast of minor academics minor think, academics minor i mean <laughs> that's a you know backhanded. Uh, john rockstrom kate rayworth uh joseph stiglitz 
those kind of minor academics that were there, you know. So that's definitely bad faith here because the, it was um, a festival of top names in the field. I think what we realized also in 2018, the science was not quite there. There's been more peer-reviewed articles published in English on the topic of growth criticism, degrowth, post-growth since 2018 that there's been in the history of the field. So now I think the idea has matured. And so now using scenarios, quantitative scenarios, qualitative case studies, you know, conceptual developments, all that kind of stuff, it's much easier to convey the argument uh, in 2023 that it was in, in 2018 or even more than it was in 2002. So now I think, and there's been also the shift of the burden of proof I was talking about. I was presenting, you know, to the parliament and I was showing some of my work on decoupling and and you can come there in front of a thousand people where you have like all the, the commissions and the parliament economists and be like, okay, guys, you want to show green growth is true? Like, show us your numbers. We're all here. So you know what? We have all the time in the world. Take the stage, show us. And I mean, many of my colleagues were here and uh, they're serious academics. They spend their day lifting every single rock in every single country, in every single journal to try to find evidence for that thing. So, you know, if they've not found it, it's not like someone somewhere in a forest has done a decoupling study that can magically show green growth can happen. It's just, it does not exist. And so I think that um, silence response to that uh, challenge of ecological economists to be, guys, please show us wrong. I wish I could be shown wrong, actually, on this decoupling thing. Please do it. The fact that no one did, I think... Uh, in the logic of science that advanced through falsification means that this kind of understanding we have of no infinite growth within a finite planet is actually the strongest uh, theory we have to understand the interaction between the economy and ecosystems. Then I think the media were shy in reporting on that and there's been a, a, a couple of interesting offshoot. I've, I've been following a lot uh, within certain uh, Twitter cycle in, in the US, people thinking like, oh, look what's happening in Europe. So seeing that conference in the parliament, they just translated like Europe is embracing degrowth, not really understanding uh, the role of, of the European parliament and uh, the subtle balance of power between the European commissions and, and the rest. They did not understood that, for example, in Europe, you know, the European commission with this uh, Green Deal is setting this kind of discourse of green growth, of pro-capitalist, pro-growth discourse. And what we were presenting as academics, we were the underdogs kind of presenting an like heterodox, a counter movement. So it's not like we were representing the mainstream and speaking for Europe as a whole. It's rather we were still representing some kind of a utopian counter movement. But let's say we're more convincing that we were a few years ago. Uh, but the fact that certain media saw this as the kind of conspiracy twist of like, look, Europe is is turning into some kind of green dictature, imposing degrowth to the rest of the world. He's showing interesting things about first how people are unaware of what these ideas are about. But also this kind of fear. Well, I've, I've always been very passionate about studying the fear people have uh, towards degrowth. Because I think it tells us a lot about the love we have towards the economic growth, which as an economist specialized in understanding what economic growth is, I find it very strange because, you know, people tend to just defy 
GDP growth as the kind of um, the delivery of well-being and justice and democracy and everything good that there is about humanity is encapsulated in this three little letter of GDP, which is it's magical thinking. It's Harry Potter stuff. I mean, there is no again scientific study that shows us this correlation between GDP rising and everything else getting to the best of possible worlds. So that's also an interesting ideology to to debunk and disconnect. And the title of that economist piece was, quote, meet the lefty Europeans who want to deliberately shrink the economy, end of quote. And even that, you know, this kind of tone from economists being like, weirdos want to shrink the economy, translate, they want to destroy prosperity. They want to kind of like sabotage a model of development. So there is still this resistance of like, we're seen as some kind of uh, moody kid that's going to break down the Jenga tower of capitalism just because we don't like it. Like emo, kind of like hard rock, teenage uh, rage being like, oh, I hate capitalism, so I'm going to break it down. Whereas like, and that was going to be my last comment, like what we've been learning in the last few years of, of degrowth studies, running scenarios and simulation and stuff is... Actually, there's what uh, Jason Hickel calls the double coincidence. The happy coincidence of, of degrowth is that the kind of policies we would need to shrink or accelerate the shrinking of the ecological footprint could also reap like social benefits. And so here we're not talking about destroying anything. We're actually, and that's the way I've been developing it into my thesis and book, like seeing degrowth as a form of economic progress. I mean, when you say this, usually the brain of a mainstream economist explodes. <laughs> now, um, clearly, post-growthers and mainstream economists don't see eye to eye. Um, surprisingly, not all post-growthers see eye to eye across all issues. Population being particularly polarising. But having said this, I wonder if post-growth can provide a perspective to take the panic out of discourse when countries go through demographic transition and when populations start to stabilise or even decline, as is happening across several European countries. To me, I always wonder, wouldn't it be great if countries could stabilise and decline with grace rather than freaking out and voting in far-right pro-natalist governments? But that's just me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, uh, it's strange because like this pro-natalist policies that we've seen in certain governments and at some point France was definitely also uh, playing that game. Um, it was not just um, some kind of genuine political agenda to be like, we want to promote larger families because we know people love to have children and we want to support that movement. If that was the case, it'll be like, all the better, fine. But no, it was just like, we want to boost population growth because we know that's going to bring more workers into the economy and so that's going to just boost GDP. And this form of uh, what some scholars have called economism, so this kind of like treating social, cultural, demographic, ecological variables as some kind of props for GDP growth is, is dangerous because here we're tinkering with uh, certain questions are so much more important than the economy. I mean, people deciding when, uh, with whom to, to start a family or what, uh, you know, religion to have or what political system do they prefer or the relation they want to establish with other species. I mean, these are uh, so, so, like model defining, like culturally defining features of, of what we do in different places. And basically the amount of money points your economy has, you know, should, should, should not be a limiting factor 
to these kind of stuff. So I think the what degrowth and in general like growth critical theories have been allowing us to do is to see critically through these discussions to be like, well, demography is just not an economic growth problem or an economic growth solution. It's a very complex social, cultural, political debate uh, that needs to go on, but it's just not something that's going to be solved by economists. Usually population people, they will either rush into like, well, two kinds of pitfalls. The first one is to be like, we need to reduce the oncological footprint. And one way of doing this is depopulation. That is a poorly informed uh, vision of the problem because we know today that there's a very strong correlation between wealth and ecological footprints. So every place in the world where you still have a fast increasing population is a place that is relatively poorer than you know most places on earth. We're talking low-income countries in the global south. And so we're also talking countries with the lowest per capita footprint than there is. So basically, they're not the one responsible for the bulk of emissions today. This famous numbers we need to have in mind is that the 800 million richest people on Earth, that's the top 10%, they are responsible for 48% of global emissions. Whereas if you take the 4 billion poorest, that's the half of humanity, uh, with least income, they're only responsible for 12% of emissions. So here we see that just focusing on regulating population, it's not having any effect on the actual problem you're trying to solve. And in any case, it's having a very slow effect because we know that acting on demography is a very slow leverage. If you decide right now to have uh, you know less children, that's an impact that's going to unfold over the course of one generation, so 24 years. Whereas like if you have a deadline in 2030, which is like... Uh, in seven years, then you will have to act on actually goods and services, not the number of humans. So that's the first pitfall is is people, but usually that's older people. In, my, in conferences, you know, when I give conferences here, there's always one question about population, but it's always someone that is older than 60 or 70 that is asking it. We understand that back in the 60s, you know, they had an exponential rates of world population, uh, at the time of the Meadows report. So there was a, a true freak out to be like, when is world population going to stop? Is it going to continue to be exponential? But in the last 50 years, I think demographic models have shown us like demographic stabilization everywhere on earth, except in these uh, poorest pockets where poverty remains. So here, I, I, I'm not worried too much about that. The, the other pitfalls has to do with a topic I've been studying more carefully in, in, in the last few years, is the financing of, of public services. So people say like, oh, you know, aging society in, in certain high-income countries, which means uh, that will have more health expenditures because people live longer lives, but then when they age, they don't work and it requires more uh, health services, so someone needs to pay for that. And so therefore, we need to maintain strong rates of economic growth in order to pay for the increasing health uh, cost of an aging society. And again, when you look at these numbers, it's very strange because it's it's a very depoliticized uh, talk. Uh, what I've been looking in France is basically uh, why are the cost of like elderly care so expensive? And basically because it's been privatized and uh, handled by for-profit corporations that make an enormous profit out of just providing these services. And then we realize that basically, again, that's not a production problem. It's not we need to just create more wealth by just 
building parkings and selling SUVs. And then with that wealth, we can pay a rich capitalist to basically build homes for our grandparents. No, it's just actually, it would be a shortcut, much more energy and material efficient way of satisfying that needs to be like, you know what, let's just have a cooperative, not-for-profit model of public services where you have universal access to elderly care at cost price, where no one is allowed to make a profit out of that activities that is deemed too important for anyone to profit out of. The countries that have made that choice, I mean, if you compare some European countries to, let's say, the US or other countries with private elderly care, you see that per capita, they are using less resources for the satisfaction of the same needs, and the countries with universal healthcare have better performance in all kind of qualitative indicators of, of health than their private counterparts. So here it shows us that, again, we're trying to solve complex institutional quality problem with the hammer of growth, hoping that somehow if you grow your economy, that's going to solve the problem. Whereas actually it's not a production problem, it's an allocation problem. Thank you for that very thoughtful answer there, Tim. Um, I must admit that I probably uh, placed myself on Camp Herman Daly or Brian Check uh, with regard to the population debate, but I do very much agree that creating false dichotomies isn't the way forward and a holistic approach toward post-growth and degrowth is most definitely the answer. So coming to the end now, in perhaps a minute or less, uh, what is your personal vision for a post-growth world and what might a day in a life look like? What would look similar and what might look different? I like to imagine small details uh, like the 99 prices. I mean, I've, I've always wondered since I was a kid why you buy something that is just 199 or just 19.99. And I mean, now we know why it is because behind this, you have a for-profit corporation that is trying to just boost sales in a competitive market economy where they're trying to sell customers from others. And so one way is to have the psychological trick to put 199 except of two. So as to make you think it's cheaper, even though you know it's not cheaper. It's the same price. It's one cent. So it's it's a bit of a, a cheap trick. And we realize that this, this cheap trick that we encounter every day only exists because we are in this competition-based for-profit capitalist economy. If we were to be in an economy where businesses are not for-profit cooperatives, basically centered around the satisfaction of needs, and where actually... Several businesses in the same sector, they can create a cluster of cooperation to better satisfy the needs of their stakeholders. Then there they will never be prices like this because they're just, you know, complicating the thing. It will be a two euro carrot and it's a two euro carrot. Same thing for advertising. I mean, the only purpose of advertising today is to incite either extra consumption or to, you know, strengthen the brand to secure some kind of monopoly or again, to competition in between brands. That's only valid in a for-profit competitive capitalist economy. If we do away with this, advertising will just cease to exist. So imagine media, the internet, a train station, a street, a radio show without any ads. If you want to buy a car, you go on car.com and all the brands have put all the information about all the models they have. And then you can even watch promotional videos from each brand if you want to. But you don't have to expose 
99% of the population to kind of SUV bashing every day, mm. even though 0.1% of them want to buy a car and one 10% of these 0.1% want to buy the kind of car they will see or actually can afford the SUV they see on a poster. So these little details in a daily life where we have basically, we have a more efficient economy because we managed to do away with this kind of sectors that only exist because they are being driven by these kind of for-profit, profit or perish kind of corporations. So that can trim the fat or what Ermendeli was, you know, calling uneconomic growth. So these kind of growth that bears more cost than benefits, and I think all kind of advertising are definitely in this, especially for SUVs and other nature-intensive products. So I think that life in a post-growth economy is is slower in the sense of we've managed to simplify needs and to share available productive infrastructure so we can actually be more effective in satisfying these simplified needs, which liberate both natural resources, that means more trees, more species, more uh, clean water around, that's what it means to liberate natural resources, to bring them back into their wild state and enjoy ecosystems in that their wild state. And we all know what this means. It means the difference between living in a city where you cannot swim in the river because it's polluted, because you have industries rejecting their, their waste into it, from a clean water river where you can just swim with your kids in it, where you don't need to you know, buy a, a yearly pass to the swimming pool or you don't need to just fly to a far away uh, crystal clear beach because you can actually swim in your city where you live and that means also liberating hours of work all the people working in advertising right now they're just wasting neurons on an activity that is actually uneconomic all of a sudden if we collectively organize towards a not-for-profit cooperative model of production we can liberate the brain of all these poor people so they can use their creativity and time to actually solve problems that are worth being solved. And in that grand transition of actually simplifying needs, I think we can just also uh, save ourselves a lot of work. So all of the you know people working in bank and inspect all real estate agent. There should be no real estate agent. That's not a job. You know, that's something that could be organized in in one single platform where you can meet people selling houses and there's no need to turn this into a job. So again, you liberate a lot of hours that can be invested in non-economic activities, uh, start a choir, organize a political party, record a lot of podcasts about whatever you want to record and learn the flutes and all these kind of stuff, Uh, start religion or, you know, whatever humans do outside of the economy. So basically lifting this kind of constraint will, I think, unleash a wave of cultural, political, social uh, creation of what economists would call wealth, even though right now it's it's not monetary wealth. It will be just uh, a, a non-monetary wealth, but a wealth nonetheless. And that's what makes me describe this kind of grand transition as progress. Because at the end, I think we'll be richer in time, in relationships, in ecosystems, even though we might be poorer for most of us with a high purchasing power today in terms of euros. Thank you for that summary there, Tim. Now, as we all know, all good things must eventually come to an end, and that includes infinite growth in a finite planet, and uh, more sadly still, that also includes our conversation. So if people would like to follow you and your work, where can they go and how can they say hello? 
Well, uh, timotheparic.com is my personal website. You have a contact form that goes straight to my personal email. So if you want to say hello, that's one way of doing so. Otherwise, uh, Timothée Paric on, on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram, where I try to uh, post every time I, I write or record or film something. I'll be happy to hear from you guys. Until then, you're a busy person, hard man. So we really appreciate you coming along to talk to a bunch of Australians. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invite. It was very fun. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, where your co-hosts Michael Bayless and Mark Allen, and we just spoke with Timothy Parikh. And uh, Mark, how did you find the interview? I thought the interview was brilliant and highly important, especially for people who take an academic interest in degrowth and economics in general. Uh, Timothy is a, a great person who's done the academic hard work but is also able to communicate degrowth in a way that we can all relate to and I love his vision of what a post-growth society would look like and how everyone's quality of life would be greatly improved you know I love his metaphors yeah that's right yeah yeah <laughs> keep saying that but you know well it's true you know <laughs> it's worth yeah and as he says, you know, the media would have us believe it would be an austere experience. And I think that's one of the big challenges, as well as persuading other academics, especially in the field of economics. You know, the challenge is to communicate to the media that actually uh, degrowth would be a wonderful way of life. I'm glad our growth-based economy hasn't given us an austere experience. Definitely hasn't, no. <laughs> Austerity never happens in a growth-based economy. It's always about improving our quality of life generation after generation. Well, I've only seen mine go up. Exactly. So I don't know about yours. Exactly. <laughs> well, more people now can afford to buy their own house than our grandparents did, which just goes to show how successful trickle-down economics really is. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Institute of Public Affairs podcast, by the way. So, you know, persuading the media and classical economists, you know, are two themes that keep coming up. And so what we need to do, I think, is, you know, remove the lens that, um, that only sees the world through those sort of neoclassical indicators. And I just mm. love the fact that he, he talked about that and made that really, really clear. I also really respect the fact that he mentions uh, demographic issues and GDP should be kept separate. Demography has no place in economics. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, it is important that we do talk about populations so that we can actually point out the fact that growth-based capitalism does rely heavily upon population growth especially in the Anglosphere countries. You know, and there's a reason why the 1%, people like Jeff Bezos and, of course, Elon Musk are very, very pro-natalist and why pro-natalism is growing. And, of course, this is translating into all kinds of areas where we're actually losing progress in terms of equal access to family planning and education and all of those things. So I think that rather than not talking about population, I think we do need to discuss it, but put it into its proper context so that it doesn't become a distraction from the urgent need of the top 10% to reduce their emissions, but to also understand why the population issue 
is part and parcel of our overall approach to actually changing towards a degrowth system that's sort of more regenerative and less expansionist, so to speak. But we've kind of written a blog on this, haven't we? We've uh, we've been meaning to write a blog on PGAP's perspective on the population issue, so we can kind of put it down in writing so that it's very clear. And it's good that we can refer to this blog from time to time rather than having to bore everyone every episode with our sort of responses to these complicated and emotive issues. What do you reckon? Yeah, so if you think any uh, gaps are missing, it will definitely be there on the blog. Yes. To to give you very concise and thorough information. And that can be found for perpetuity on the PGAP website. The link will be provided in the show notes. And it will also address all of the stuff that Timote talks about and looks at that in a bit more detail. It was kind of a good opportunity to write the blog opportunity presents itself and i um will include in the show notes as well a link once more (laughs) to an article that i wrote for population media center um, which puts forward the argument on why population growth may actually exacerbate a host of other social issues such as wealth inequality and erosion of democracy. Uh, I don't see these as discrete issues. I see them as uh, creating a positive feedback loop with each other. Uh, you can read further if, if one hasn't done so already. Fantastic. And please, everyone, please share this podcast with your academic friends, your economist friends, people who tell you that you can't have degrowth people who tell you that the only answer is green growth. We need to get this word out here. And Timotei uh, presents issues that really can reach certain demographics that other people can't reach. So we're really, really grateful for what Timotei's done. And also all the early work he did, he was like going around Europe, piecing the bits together in order to make something that was not only cohesive, but greater than the sum of its parts that actually can stand up to academic scrutiny. So we're really, really grateful for that. And in keeping with Timotei's vision of a post-growth future, um, PGAP does not rely on advertising to get the word around. Instead, we rely on our communities. We do. To share with your friends, families, networks, bitter enemies, whoever, um, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite platform. And also to contact us anytime, don't be shy, on uh, your ideas, your thoughts, uh, future topics, future guests. And uh, we'd just love to hear from you and your own personal degrowth journey. We definitely do. So please don't be a stranger and share the love. More exciting episodes to come soon, but until then... Until then.